The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Acts chapter 16, I invite you to open your Bibles there. And I I just want to set the stage this morning for what you're going to hear, some testimonies and the baptisms that we're going to observe. And I, I want to prepare you for that by looking at one of the greatest conversions and immersions in the scriptures. Acts chapter 16. We have 10 people today who are going to be baptized. Jack and Susan Hall, Stephen Shaftsma, Megan Plude, Joe and Tracy Scheid, Elliot Peterman, Anna Peterman, Harold Klukowski, and Wendy Kulawine. And they're going to stand up here in just a few moments. And they are going to testify as to what Christ has done and how he's changed their life. You know, there's no such thing as a boring testimony, is there? Have you ever heard a boring testimony? Never. Every testimony is unique because every testimony points to Christ and his amazing work. And so every time I hear a testimony, I think of my own testimony, my own baptism. And this morning, I want you as well to think about your own testimony and your own baptism. And I want you to rejoice in the work that God has done in these people's lives, but in your life as well. Before we do that, though, I want to speak a little bit about baptism because there's so much confusion about it today. There's so much confusion about this issue of baptism, some denying that baptism has any place in the church, some saying that it actually is required to be saved, that if you're not baptized, you're not saved, and we don't believe the Bible teaches that. There are others who say that infants should be sprinkled, while others say that believing adults should be baptized. There are some who even practice a baptism for the dead. So there's a lot of confusion about this. And frankly, it's not a confusing issue. It's a very simple issue, very easy issue for us to understand. And it's crucial for us to understand this because there's only two ordinances in the church today, the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so if this is one of the two, we have to understand what it's about. And so we here at Maranatha believe the scriptures teach believer's baptism. That when you've been saved by Christ, that you want to testify what he's done. You want to speak publicly about what Christ has done and and give evidence and give testimony to what he's done in your life. That's what we believe the scriptures teach. We believe it's a symbol that illustrates what has taken place in your life, having been baptized into Christ. And water baptism is simply a picture of that. One person, one uh, writer describes it this way. He says, believer's baptism is a public testimony of one's union with Christ. The act symbolizes a believer's identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The act is a solemn reminder to the individual and to all who observe that there is no turning back, end quote. And when you stand in the waters of baptism, that's what you are saying. You are saying there is no turning back. I was once dead. I'm alive. I was once in sin. I've now been freed from sin. And when you enter the waters of baptism, that's what you're saying. And that's what those who are going to be baptized this morning are saying. To help us understand this, I want to look at one of the most unique baptisms in the Bible, the Philippian jailer. Acts chapter 16 is where we find this incredible story, so open your Bibles there. 
Let me just set the context for you so you know what's taking place. Paul has on his second missionary journey. He's completed his first journey. He's on his second journey. And he and Silas were traveling from city to city proclaiming the gospel. And they'd come through Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And they tried to go into Asia, but the Holy Spirit did not permit them because God had a divine appointment for these two men in Philippi. And so he's guiding their path and he's directing their steps and they come to to Philippi and they preach the gospel and this woman named Lydia comes to Christ because God opens her heart and she believes in Christ and she's wonderfully transformed and saved. In Acts chapter 16, it tells us also that in Philippi there was a a demon-possessed girl who was a medium. This was a girl who was possessed by a demon who would contact demons and predict the future. And it says in Acts chapter 16 that this girl was just hounding Paul and Silas for days, saying, these men keep preaching the way of salvation. And she kept hounding them and hounding them and hounding them. And I love it. In Acts chapter 16, it actually says in verse 18 that Paul was greatly annoyed. You ever think about Paul getting annoyed? Here's, here's Paul, the apostle, the writer of half the New Testament, and he is just kind of ticked off. Leave us alone. And so he says, out with you, demon. He casts a demon out of this girl. She loses her ability to contact demons. She loses her ability to predict the future. And she was making all kinds of money doing this. Hand over fist, money after money. She was pulling in a big income by doing this. She was making lots of money for her masters. Well, you can think what they thought of this. Their income just dried up. And they're not so happy. And so her masters seize Paul and Silas and they drag them into the city of Philippi before the city officials and they say, these men are throwing our city into confusion. You better do something about it. Well, they're upset because their income's gone. And that's the setting. That's where we find this setting for this Philippian jailer's conversion. I want to read the text to you. Follow along as I read Acts chapter 16, verse 22. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore, off their, tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused out of his sleep and had seen the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm. We're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and all your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord together uh, to, the, to, to him together with all who were in his house. And when they took, he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house. 
and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with the whole household. Amazing story. For those of you who are being baptized this morning, I want you to be encouraged that you're taking a step of obedience that has been done for over 2,000 years. And for those of you who have been baptized already, I want you to rejoice in your own baptism. And if you're here to this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior or been baptized by immersion, I want you to be challenged. I want you to be convicted either to come to Christ, well, come to Christ first, and secondly, be obedient to the command to be baptized. From this story, I want to give you five scenes, just briefly, five scenes in the story of the Philippian jailer's conversion and immersion. Just five quick scenes I want you to see to help us understand what's taking place here. First is the divine appointment. If you want to take some notes, this is the first scene in the story is, number one, the divine appointment. Now, I want you to see how God orchestrates the circumstances here to bring about this man's conversion. Look at verse 22. And the crowd rose up together against them. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. So here's Paul and Silas. They're dragged into the city place, into the city center. They're stood before the city magistrates and they're charged with throwing the city into confusion. They should have ensured that justice was done. They should have set up a trial. They should have investigated to see if these charges were true against Paul and Silas, but they didn't. No hearing was held. And so these men are thrust before the city's officials. They're stripped off of their robes and they're ordered to be beaten with rods, which was frankly illegal because Paul was a Roman citizen. That's what happened. Look at verse 23. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they were beaten, beaten mercilessly. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he was beaten three times with rods. This is one of those times. The policemen were summoned. They pulled out their rods, which was actually probably a bundle of rods tied together. And these men were publicly beaten. Look down at verse 37. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now therefore go out, and go out in peace. That's verse 36. Verse 37, Paul said to them, They have beaten us in public without trial. This is before the whole city. And they're beaten publicly. And you can just imagine the scene. They've been beaten. They've been dragged out of the city. They've been thrust before the city officials and taken these blows. And then to add insult to injury, they're thrown into prison. Look at verse 23. And when they had inflicted upon many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. They're thrown in the inner prison, not the outer prison. They're thrown in the most secure portion of this prison and they're thrown in there and to make sure they wouldn't escape, their feet are put in stocks, wooden stocks, where they probably would have spread their legs far apart where it would have been very painful. So here there's two men, unjustly charged, unjustly beaten, unjustly imprisoned. It's a seemingly hopeless situation, right? God, here we are preaching the gospel. We're we're telling people about Jesus. And this is what happens? I wonder if they were tempted to think, God, God, what are you doing here? 
Did, did you forget something here? Did, did you kind of miss the plan here? Because this isn't really what we planned. This isn't quite how we expected things to go work out. But behind this, God is working. And God is orchestrating all these events in order to bring about his purpose and his plan because there's someone who needed to hear the gospel. And he was the jailer. He was the man in charge of this jail. And in order to get this man to hear the gospel of Christ... Paul and Silas needed to go to prison. I love how God works. There's no mistakes, is there? God knows exactly what he's doing, and God puts these two men right where they need to be in order for them to proclaim the gospel. And so God's fingerprint is all over this account. His his plan and sovereignty is over this whole situation. His plans are never thwarted. They always accomplish his purposes. Just by way of quick application, God may have you in an undesirable situation right now to be a vehicle of his grace. And you can't see it. You don't know it. You're on this side of it and you have no idea what God is doing, but he may have you there for the sole purpose of being an agent of his grace and a minister of the gospel. Paul and Silas didn't know that yet, though. They're imprisoned. And it seems, maybe from their perspective, to be a desperate, kind of hopeless situation. That's the divine appointment. Number two, the supernatural occurrence. Here's the second scene I want you to see. It's the supernatural occurrence. Look at verse 25. Look how it begins. But. Isn't that good? There's a glimmer of hope already at the start of verse 25. But. I love that word. Because it shows you it's not hopeless. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. It's midnight. They're in the middle of the jail. Their legs are in stocks. They've been beaten with rods just a few hours earlier, and here they are, praying and singing praises. We don't know what these men prayed for. It doesn't tell us what they prayed for. Maybe they prayed for their release. In Acts chapter 12, remember when Peter was in prison, an angel came in the middle of the night and released him from prison. And so maybe they knew about that, and maybe they're praying that God would do the same thing for them, or maybe they're just praying, Lord, use this circumstance for your glory and use this for your purposes. We don't know for sure, but they were praying. And it says in verse 25, not only were they praying, they were singing. They weren't singing jailhouse rock. They were singing hymns of praise to our God. I just love this. Here they are in a dark prison cell. Bruises all over their body. Unjustly accused. Imprisoned. And they're belting out praises. So that it says in verse 25... All the prisoners were listening to them. That's so good. What an example of pure joy in the midst of trials. What an example of men who are not finding their joy in their circumstances. They're not finding their satisfaction in favorable circumstances. Their joy was in the Lord. And so they're reflecting that in their prayers and they're reflecting that in their singing. They didn't look to their circumstances for joy, they looked at their circumstances through the lens of what they knew about God. We can learn a lot from them. What trial are you in right now? Are you, are you praying? 
Are you singing hymns of praise to God in the midst of your trial? Look at what happened next. Verse 26. And suddenly there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfashioned. And so here they are. Picture the scene. It's midnight. And they're singing and they're praying and all the prisoners are hearing it. And suddenly, out of nowhere, this great earthquake hits. This may have been the most powerful earthquake ever because this was by the hand of God. So powerful was it, verse 26 says, foundations of the prison house were shaken and all the doors were opened and everyone's chains came off. Imagine the scene. I mean, it's relatively quiet and peaceful probably at midnight in a prison. And suddenly the the praying and the singing is, is interrupted by this loud earthquake and the sound of doors flying open and the sound of chains falling off. And God in his sovereignty used this natural event to fling those doors open and release all the prisoners. Wow. What a change of events. What a change of events from just a few hours ago. What happens next? Third, number three, I want you to see the third scene. It's the desperate question. So you've seen the divine appointment, the supernatural occurrence. Number three, here's the desperate question. And this is where we meet the jailer. Look at verse 27. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. You see that same earthquake that rocked the prison woke the jailer up. His house was probably right next to the prison. And the same earthquake that flung those prison doors open awakened this jailer. And he was roused out of his sleep. And you can probably almost imagine what happened. He's, he's a little groggy because he was in a deep sleep at midnight, right? And suddenly this massive shaking shook his house. And he stumbled out in the darkness and he walks out of his house into the prison. And he is shocked by what he sees. Doors are open. The chains are off. And all the prisoners are walking around freely. And the first thought that crossed his mind was, I've got to kill myself. Because as a Roman jailer, you were entirely responsible for those prisoners. And if any of them escaped for any reason, and it didn't matter what the reason was, you would be held responsible and executed Because he failed to do your job. And so that's what he's assumed has happened. He's assumed that that's what's taken place. And so rather than endure the humiliating and excruciating punishment that would have come to him from the hand of the Romans, he thought about taking his life. Says he drew his sword, a machaira, a short dagger. Not a big, long sword. It's a short sword. It's a short dagger used for cutting and stabbing. And his first thought was to pull that thing out and to end his life. Look at verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. He said, stop. Don't do it. We're all here. None of us have left. All the prisoners are here. Even though the doors are open and the chains are off, we're all here. No one's gone anywhere. They could have escaped. 
doesn't tell us why they didn't. Maybe, maybe they were still so in shock by having survived an earthquake that they're just trying to figure out what happened. They haven't gone anywhere. Or maybe they feared the consequences of being uh, caught after escaping. Or maybe they were so impressed by Paul and Silas praying and singing that brought about an earthquake that they didn't dare leave. Well, you can just imagine how all of this was just unimaginable to the jailer. He's shocked. The doors are open. The shackles are off. And yet the prisoners are all there. Verse 29. And he called for the lights. And he rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. This is amazing turn of events. Because this jailer is in charge of the prisoners. And here he comes running in, trembling with fear. And the word trembling is entramas, where we get our word tremor. He was literally shaking with fear. He was so terrified, he was shaking in his boots over what has just taken place. His defenses have been stripped away, and he was brought to his knees. This fearless, powerful commander of the jail is on his face before Paul and Silas. I don't think he was trembling just from the earthquake. I think he was trembling because he had just encountered the holy, sovereign God. He'd just been confronted with the reality of a just and powerful and holy and righteous God. And certainly he probably had heard about the message that Paul and Silas were preaching the days before in Philippi. And possibly he even heard them praying and heard them singing in the prison if his house was nearby. And certainly he's aware of all these things. And I think in that moment he was cut to the heart. And he suddenly became convinced that those two men were speaking the truth. So this striking demonstration of God's power in the earthquake brought this man to his knees. He's just seen the power of God unleashed on this prison. He was ready to hear the gospel. You see, when you've had an encounter with God, like that, you're brought to your knees. You remember Isaiah chapter 6? We talked about it this weekend. Steve talked about it so last night or yesterday morning. When Isaiah saw that vision of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty and the angels around the throne of God, exalting God the Father and singing praises to him. When Isaiah saw that heavenly vision, he was reduced to being on his face and he said, woe is me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. You see, when you come to see the presence and you see the manifestation of the power of God, you are reduced only to what this man was reduced to, falling on your face. Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Remember Peter fishing? They were fishing all night. Fished, fish, 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 caught nothing. Not one thing. And as they're coming in in the morning, they see Jesus on the shore. And Jesus says to them, hey, try your nets on the other side. And they're thinking, what? We've been out all night. And they do it anyway. And the hall is so great, they can hardly get it into their boats. And they come to shore. And Peter falls on his face before Christ. And he says to Jesus, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. You see, that's your only response. 
when you come face to face with a holy God and you see his power displayed. That's what this man is experiencing right here. And he's forced to ask the most important question that everyone has to ask. Look at verse 30. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He got it, didn't he? He knew he needed forgiveness. He knew he needed to be redeemed. His eyes of his heart were open to see his need for a savior. Some think he's just saying here, well, I need to be saved from the punishment that could come to me as a jailer. But that's really not what he's asking because none of the prisoners had escaped. They're all still there. And frankly, if that was the case, why would he be asking the prisoners? No, what he, need, what he realizes, he's, he needs forgiveness. He needs reconciliation with God. And so the greatest danger in the world is not an earthquake or some consequences for failing to keep the prisoners. The greatest danger in the world is having to face a holy God. And in that moment, he recognized his great need. And he cries out to Paul and Silas. And he says, what do I have to do to be saved? Friends, listen, that's the right question. That's the right question to be asking. That's the only question to be asking because he had a glimpse of God in that earthquake and the light of that shined upon him. He saw that he was a lost man and he was cut to the heart and he realized he needed to be saved from his sins so he could be right with God. And friends, every one of us has to ask that question. You need to ask that question. I need to ask that question. If you're here today and you've not trusted Christ as your Savior, you have to ask this question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The people who are being baptized today, they've all asked that question. And if you're here today and you've never thought about it, you need to understand that you will have to face this God. And you will be forced to ask that question. Have you asked it? More importantly, have you had it answered? Have you trusted Christ? Number four, the divine appointment, the supernatural occurrence, the desperate question. Number four is the glorious conversion. Verses 31 and 32, they said to him, believe. This is the glorious conversion. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. Here's Paul and Silas and they give him the answer, the only answer that can be given to someone who asks this question. They say, believe on the Lord Jesus. I love this. They preach the gospel right there in that prison, having come through an earthquake Doors thrown open, shackles thrown off, and here's Paul and Silas at midnight preaching the gospel to this jailer. They preached Christ. They didn't preach religion. They didn't preach go to church. They didn't say go to the synagogue. They didn't say add Jesus to your life. They preached Christ. And I believe here they preached the full gospel to this man. They preached the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only answer for a man who's gripped with his need for forgiveness. Only Christ is a solution. 
Only he lived the perfect life. Only he is a substitute for sinners. Only he took God's wrath. Only he can be the mediator between God and man. Acts 4.12 says salvation is found in no one else. These two men preached the gospel to this man. They exalted Christ they showed him how Christ in all of his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension is a solution to man's problems and there's no other solution. They didn't say anything else. They didn't say, and by the way, do this and do this and do this and do this and do this. They said, believe in Christ. And the belief that they're urging him to here is not a superficial belief. It's not just kind of tag Jesus onto your life or go to church every once in a while. This is a belief in what the Lord Jesus, the Lordship of Christ. This is a call. They're calling this man to commitment. They are calling this man to embrace Christ as Lord and Master and Savior. They are calling him to commit himself fully to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This isn't just add Jesus to your life and, and kind of act like a good person. This is a call to believe upon the Lordship, upon his deity, upon his, the fact that he is Master and he owns you and he has every right to command you. And they say to him, in verse 31, if you do that, you'll be saved. What good news. What good news for a man who has come face to face with a holy and powerful God. And I think right there, you can't see it, but right there between verse 32 and verse 33, you see that little white space? That's where he got saved. Right there. Right in the white space between those two verses, this man on his knees trusted Christ because the gospel became precious to him and Christ became precious to him. This man came face to face with God and as suddenly his affections were captivated with Christ. Those who are being baptized today are saying the same thing. They're saying, there's no turning back. I have believed upon the Lord Jesus, upon his lordship, and I've committed myself to him, and I'm seeking to follow him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, last, number five. It's the immediate baptism. Here's the final scene I want you to see. It's the immediate baptism. Verse 33. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God and his whole household. I want you to notice that after he cared for Paul and Silas and the wounds that they had sustained from their breeding, the first thing this man did was be baptized. I want to draw out some principles for you, just very quickly. Three principles from this portion I want you to notice first that baptism is post-salvation. First principle I want you to see is that baptism is always post-salvation, meaning you don't get sprinkled before you come to Christ. You don't get sprinkled as a, a baby and call that baptism. It's always post-salvation because when you're converted, you're converted and you're identified with Christ at the moment of your conversion. You are identified with his, his life, his death, and his resurrection. You are baptized into Christ at the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. And so only then does the symbolism of baptism work. So it's post-salvation. 
That's why we don't baptize or sprinkle infants here. Because it has to be for those who have trusted Christ as believers' baptism. Those who are true believers. And I want you to notice also, it's for all believers. And throughout the scriptures, we find out that this is something that all believers are to do. God commands believers to be baptized. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Remember what Christ said in the Great Commission. He said, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father. This is one of the first things you do when you come to Christ. You get baptized. It's a command. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, each one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a command. It's for believers who have identified themselves with Christ, having come to him for salvation. So the first thing I want you to notice is post-salvation. The second thing I want you to notice is it's immediate. It's immediate. Look at verse 33. And immediately he was baptized. Immediately. He didn't wait around. He didn't delay. He didn't put this off. He didn't say, you know, I, I think I need some time to work through this a little bit, you know. And No, right there at that moment. I don't know where the water was, but somewhere they found it in that prison. And this man was dunked. And he publicly professed Christ. You see, that's what happens when you've trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't want to wait. You don't want to delay. You don't want to put it off. You don't want to be fearful of, of, of maybe speaking in front of us. You want to testify. You want to speak boldly about Christ and your life's been transformed and you want to tell people and you want to show it by being baptized. It's immediate. You're a new creation in Christ. You love Christ. You've been adopted into his family and you're overcome with affection for Christ. You are instantly fit for heaven. You're sanctified. You're justified. You're saved. You're redeemed. You're purchased. You're made new. And immediately you want to say, I want to tell people about this. I want to show people Christ has transformed me. It's immediate. The third thing I want you to notice is it's full immersion. You say, how do you know? Because the word itself means full immersion. Baptizo. Verse 33, he was baptized. Baptizo. We transliterate it from the Greek into the English. And it literally means to dunk, to dip, to immerse. Don't worry, people. We won't drown you today. We will probably hold you down a little bit. Make sure you really get the full effect. We won't drown you. That's what the word means. It means to put you fully under, to immerse, to go fully down and to come fully up. It's a meaning so obvious that John Calvin said to baptize means to immerse. This was certainly the practice of the early church. Every baptism that you see in scripture was by immersion. Matthew 3.16, Christ's own baptism. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. Acts chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, the Ethiopian eunuch both went down into the water and then they came up out of the water. It's always by immersion. Every baptism in the scripture is by immersion because, listen, only that mode of baptism is an appropriate symbol for what Christ has done. When you go under that water, it's a symbol of the washing away of your sins and your old life in Christ. And when you come up out of the water, it's a picture of a new life, changed, transformed. And so only immersion fits that picture. Colossians 2 verse 12 says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. You see, when you go through the believer's baptism, you are saying, I am buried with Christ and I am raised up with him. That's the story. 
That's the amazing story of the Philippian jailer's immersion and conversion. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.